The reason there is a rebirth is because Jesus came out of the grave. And we're going to learn about that this morning. We preach the resurrection on Easter. We're going to preach the resurrection again today. Uh, and if you think that's redundant, then think about this. If the only time we talk about the resurrection is on Easter, then we've got a problem. Uh, if the only time we talk about the incarnation is on Easter or on Christmas, we have a problem. These are precious truths and they should be on our lips all the time. And so, um, Jonathan Edwards, I'm going to get my Edwards quote out this morning. The sufficiency of Christ to save us and give us life is represented by the same thing. He is a sufficient Savior because He is a living Savior. I love it. This morning, I want us to think about something as we read. The gospel is not simply about what Jesus did. The gospel is about what Jesus is even doing now. Seated at the right hand of the Father. King Jesus is on His throne right now. When you have marital problems, King Jesus reigns. When you have financial problems, King Jesus reigns. When you have health issues, Jesus reigns. Jesus is alive and He is sovereign over everything. The fact that Jesus died and reconciled us to God gives us peace. The fact that Jesus lives and He intercedes on our behalf gives us hope. Uh, if you're you all know i got to go through the gospel every single Sunday, so this is, this is the gospel. Christ was raised from the dead and defeated death so that he could in turn raise us from the dead by the very same spirit which raised him. We have life because he lives. That's it. That's the gospel. Um, so with that, if you'll turn to John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. I tell you, we're almost to the end. There's only 21 chapters. Um... And we're, that means now, since I've been here, I finished Romans, we went through 1 John, and now we're almost toward the end of John. Uh, and once you've found your place, if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. And John in the Spirit writes, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Father, teach us all that you're doing in Christ. Show us this morning the miracle of the resurrection and what that miracle has to say to us today as sinners. Give us fresh eyes to read this text, one that many of us have read many times. Not so that we become bored with it, not, become, not that this ever becomes mundane, but Father, please allow this precious news, this story of Jesus, to be just as miraculous, to be just as wonderful and remarkable today as it ever was. And all these things we ask in your precious Son's name. Amen. So here is the summary I'm going to give of this text. Christ was raised by the Spirit so that He could ascend to the Father, where the Son and the Father could then send the Spirit which raised Jesus upon the church. I'm going to read that one, time, one more time. It's deep. Christ was raised by the Spirit so that He could ascend to the Father, where the Son and the Father could then send the Spirit which raised Jesus upon the church. The reason I, I, I phrased it like that, Son, Father, Spirit, Son, Father, Spirit, Christ, Father, Spirit. The resurrection plan, the gospel, is a divine mission by the triune God. The Trinity is all involved in salvation. We've gone over that many times. The more we understand the Trinity, the more we understand every person of the Godhead, what they're doing, the more we understand what God's will is for the gospel. What's the Son doing? What's the Spirit doing? What's the Father doing? No one is just sitting on the divine table up in heaven going, I'm going to wait till the Son gets back before I start doing something. No. The Trinity is always at work. If we understand what the triune God is doing, then we understand more what Jesus means when he asks Mary, don't, don't cling to me. His work is not done yet. If I, we could break down the life of Jesus into seven parts, I would do this. Man, that was good, Chris, that you fit that all on there. Wow. <laughs> Jesus was born as a man under the law. Jesus lived a sinless life under the law. Jesus died a substitutionary death under the law. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus appears to his disciples and sends them out. Jesus ascends to the Father. Jesus is seated right now at the hand of the Father. There you go, right there. I don't want to be simplistic and just break down the entire life of Jesus into seven parts, but that's essentially what I did. Now, the reason I put number five in parentheses is because there's only a 40-day window between when Jesus is raised and when he ascends. Not very long at all, but it's a very critical time, very crucial time, because he's revealing himself to the apostles. He's sending them out, giving them the Great Commission. As we just read in the, in, in the scriptures there, John comes in and finally the light goes on and he goes, oh, that's what Jesus meant. So this 40-day window between when Jesus is raised and when he ascends is very critical to the mission of the church. We see that also in the book of Acts. But it's also kind of a slightly awkward time. And we see that when he's like, don't, I don't know how that worked. But Mary's like, hey, he's like, nah, don't touch me right now. I don't know how that worked out. But what's happening here essentially is Jesus has received his resurrection body, but he hasn't, in, he, he hasn't assumed fully ascended state yet. The process of glorification has not been completed, I think is what we can say. So whatever, whatever Jesus is, whatever his body is like in that moment is much like his body right now in heaven. It's a spiritual body, as Paul would say. 
but he has glorified flesh, if we can say that. I can't imagine that. I've never seen it. But that's what it is. And Jesus has to move on so that who else can come? The Spirit. So this is an important time in Christ's ministry, but it's a very unique time. And it all starts with an empty tomb. Let's read verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. There's a theological reason that we meet on Sundays to go to church. Did you know that? It's not that the NFL and the church got together and be like, okay, we're gonna, you get out in church, we can go play football, it'll just work. That's not how it happened. There's a theological reason that we go to church on Sunday. Here it is. Jesus began creating on the first day of the week. Jesus began his new creation on the first day of the week. The resurrection was on uh, the first day. Pentecost was on the first day of the week. The early church met on the first day of the week. Sunday, by the, end of, well, by the time Revelation is written, they're calling Sunday the Lord's Day. There's a very theological, I think like denominations like uh, the Seventh-day Adventists, uh, they meet on Saturdays. Um, that's because of the way they understand the seventh day. They, they rest on the seventh day. They take that from God's creating. But the church as a whole has met on Sunday because today, Sunday, is the day of the week Mary Magdalene came and discovered the empty tomb. Today is the day Mary Magdalene came and, and discovered the, the tomb was empty. And we meet on Sunday because we realize that God is doing in that empty tomb much of what he was doing at the beginning of the world, he was creating, now he's recreating. Sunday is creation day. What's funny to me is the friendly little rivalry between Peter and John. Verses 2 through 4. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Stop. That's John. I think we've been over that before. John doesn't reference himself in the gospel. That's John. So Peter and John are running. I don't know why I did that, but... And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John is writing about him outrunning Peter. I can see John's be like, ah, beat you. And he's like, ah, no one's ever going to know that. And John's like, you'll know that. I'm going to put it in here. I'll be inspired by the Holy Spirit, and everybody will know I'm faster than you. The other thing I like to know is it's neatly folded. Did you notice that? Parents, okay? Jesus wasn't a slouch, okay? He gets in there, what did he do with the head towel? He folded it. I like that. Jesus was neat uh, in some sense. Jesus didn't leave a sloppy room. He was neatly folded. But verse 9 says they didn't really understand it, and John didn't really understand it until he went into the tomb and said... That's what Jesus was talking about. He actually meant he was not going to die. He was going to be raised. He was going to die and be raised. Um, I like that it said, and he believed. It was in that moment, John believed and said, Wow, Jesus is God. We can look to the resurrection of Jesus and understand in some ways how God saves sinners today. Jesus was dead. And then he was alive. There was never a time when Jesus was half dead and half alive. 
When Jesus was raised, he never went back into the grave. And that is exactly how God in the Bible treats human beings. You're either dead or you're alive. When you become born again, you never go back to being dead. When God raises sinners, they never return to the grave. I think that's a very important point to make. This is one of the reasons I might step on some toes here. Get ready. This is one of the reasons I have, I'm a little cautious I don't, I don't not like them. I think they're great sometimes. I just think we need to be careful. These uh, public rededications, um, something you won't find in the Bible uh, that the American church has, has really invented. Now, let me clarify. You can rededicate your life. There ain't nothing wrong with that. I think I've done it. The Bible speaks about renewing a right spirit within us. So it's, there's there. The, the Bible is very clear that there's seasons of our lives where we're distant from God. Look at David, a man after a man, uh, God's own heart, and his when he's coming back to the Lord. So there's, no, there's nothing wrong with the idea of, of, of rededicating our lives to the Lord. The problem I have is, I think there are a lot of people who publicly want to rededicate their life who really weren't saved to begin with. And what you're seeing is someone who says they're rededicating their life, and they may just be, be born again. I think a lot of people treat their faith like it's a volunteer sign-up. Where they go, hey, you know, I, I, I said I was going to do it and I didn't, but it's going to be different this time. That is not how faith works. That's, that's not a Christian. That's a dead person who needs to come out of the grave. Jesus isn't just our commitment. Jesus is our life. There are a lot of dead people who've spent a lot of time rededicating, reprioritizing, refocusing, and what God is really calling them to do is to crucify the old self and be raised with Jesus. Christianity is not a new diet that we try. Now, I'm going to be convicted here when I say this. It's not a Netflix series that we start, and the first season was good, but uh, the second kind of, man, I'm done with it. Christianity is about God raising people from the dead just like he did Jesus. They, never, they, may, ne- they may never go back. They, they, they don't go back to the grave. They may return to a former sins. They may go through seasons of doubt and darkness. But people made alive by God don't return to the grave. Now, I'm going to tell you all this. When God saved me, since God saved me, I have sinned many, many, many times. Since God saved Avi Todd, I have gone through darkness. I have gone through um, what, I would, what I would venture to say is in some form addiction. I would, I would venture to say I've gone through valleys, um, places where I just I hated myself because I hated my sin when I was far from God. But make no mistake, and hear me now, once God saved me, I was never the same person when God got a hold of me. Never. We need to make that distinction very careful because I think a lot of people think when I become a Christian, I become perfect. No. But when you become a Christian and God gets a hold of you and He changes your heart, you are fundamentally different. He changes the taste in your mouth, He changes the things you want and the things you desire. It doesn't mean you don't fall back into sin, it doesn't mean that you don't need the church to come alongside you and to sharpen you and to encourage you and to love you, but it does mean that God fixed that ticker problem you had. When Mary and Magdalene showed up and when John and Peter showed up, Jesus was gone. 
And when God saves a person, they may not be glorified yet, but they're out of the grave. I think when Jesus, what God does with Jesus in the tomb is a picture of what he does with every single sinner who calls upon the name of the Lord. I wanted to quote Charles Spurgeon. This is one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes. It's kind of long, but I thought it was worth it. Better to be broken in pieces by the Spirit of God than to be made whole by the flesh. What doth the Lord say? I kill, but what next? I made alive. He never makes any alive but those he kills. Blessed be the Holy Ghost when he kills me, when he drives the sword through the very bowels of my own merits and my self-confidence. For then he will make me alive. I wound and I heal. He never heals those whom he has not wounded. Then blessed be that hand that wounds. Let it go on wounding. Let it cut and tear. Let it lay bare to me myself at my very worst. That I may be driven to self-despair. And may fall back upon the free mercy of God. And receive it as a poor, guilty, lost, helpless, undone sinner. Who casts himself into the arms of sovereign grace. Knowing that God must give all. Christ must be all. And the spirit must work all. And man must be as clay in the potter's hands that the Lord may do with him as seemeth him good. You can't fit all that on Facebook or else I'd put it on there. That is a one... Parents, right now, I'm speaking to the parents. You should pray now that your child would come out of the grave one day. Now, I don't understand. We, we, We don't pray those kinds of prayers all the time. It's difficult to pray for our young children because they're so young, they're innocent, and because they don't have a full knowledge of the gospel yet. But if we're going to pray for our children to have a good education, we're going to pray for our kids to have good, strong morals, if we're going to pray right now, as I know you do, that our kids will one day be successful, then you can pray that your child would one day be a new creation. We should pray for our children's souls now. And for those of you who are retired... For those of you who don't have kids, in, pray for our young couples. Older couples, the challenge, younger couples, okay, I'm going to talk, talk two sides here. Young couples, if you don't have a kid yet, pray for the ones that do have kids. Couples that have kids, pray for your children and others' children and their souls. Part of your problem, or our, our problem and our challenge in the church today is we don't just want to help one another by cooking for one another. We want to help one another by praying. And we have a lot of older, wiser, not old, older. We have a lot of older, Robert Washington, I think I I called him old one time. I won't ever do it again. (laughs) But I know the Washingtons pray for our young couples. And that's why they're here. To pray and to encourage and to sharpen and to love. I should pray right now that Roman and Ruby would grow up and, and God would save them, pull them out of the grave, and they would live lives honoring to God. And I'm going to be honest with you all. I have days where I don't pray for my kids. Where I forget. And after I realize that I forgot that day, I feel awful. I feel worse on a day when I don't pray for my kids than I do when I forgot to read them story time before they get to bed. And and, and I should feel that in some ways because if my job is is to nurture and to, be the, and to be the provider, the one thing I should provide the most is supplication to God and saying, look, please, Father, please, look after the souls of my children. Look after the souls of the Malloys. Look after the souls of the Normans. Look after the souls of the Macintoshes. I should pray for every one of you, and you should pray for every one in, each, in this room. And it starts with the rebirth. 
I could pray of no better prayer for the child at this church than to say, God, one day pull them out of the grave. Verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. You know, in the Old Testament, they don't call God Father that often. You ever notice that? They call him King, they call him Adonai, they call him Creator, they call him Yahweh. You don't see Father language in the Old Testament that often comparatively than in the New Jesus says to, did you catch it? My father and your father. My God and your God. That's incredible language coming from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is telling these sinners, we have the same dad now. That's incredible. This is adoption language. The resurrection is how God accomplishes adoption of sinners. By indwelling them with the very own spirit that he has. Resurrection isn't just about a new life. Resurrection is about a new family. And it is no coincidence that when Jesus hops out of the grave, the first thing he says is, my dad, your dad. We got the same dad now. That's amazing. I want to conclude with a quote. I have no, I'm committing a a kind of a preaching sin here. I'm quoting a person that I don't, I don't know them at all. And so I hope they don't have a criminal record, but they had one heck of a quote. So I'm going to use it. I don't, does anybody know who Donald Barnhouse is? I don't know who this person is. But I, just, I saw it on Facebook and I thought, wow, that was good. I want everyone to read this. If Satan were, re- were really to take over a city, the following would happen. The bars would close, no alcohol would be sold, there would be happy marriages and well-behaved children, no crime, and everyone would be in churches on Sunday where Christ is not preached. Think about that. I read that. At first I had to reread it. I went, bars are, I don't get it. The bars are, no, no, no. No, he would want the the bars to be open. Now, where I think he went wrong is that's probably not the only way Satan could could conquer a city. We we all know that that Satan has done immeasurable work through alcoholism and through abandonment and people who don't go to church. But the idea here is that we often equate Satan's strongholds in this world with a good, orderly, moral society. But Satan can do remarkable work with well-mannered, educated, hard-working people. The most important thing for our world is that people hear about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The goal of the Christian life is not simply moral improvement. The goal of the Christian life is resurrection by faith in Jesus. A depraved, wretched unbeliever can overcome addiction. I've seen it. A vile sinner can have good manners, especially in the South. I know many unbelieving households where they have really well-behaved kids. But only the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that brought Jesus out of the grave, can change a human heart from one that hates God to one that loves Him. We need the resurrection, church. We need to be resurrected. We need to be raised. Nothing less will save us. 
Only Jesus can accomplish it. So when we read this passage in, in John chapter 20 and Jesus coming out of the grave, it's not like we're just reading something really miraculous and cool that Jesus did. No, this is something that Jesus did on our behalf because nothing less would save us than to overcome death. Death had such a grip, such a hold, such a, um, such a fortress over sinners that the only way that God could save us was to attack death at its core, to die and to be raised, publicly displaying that death had no dominion over the living God. And that's why today when we say, hey, do you believe in the gospel? We say, do you believe and confess that Jesus died, but he was raised? Because the death of Christ pays our penalty. But if he doesn't come out of that grave, we have no way to be reborn. So this morning I challenge for anyone, if you know a lot of people who believe in the gospel, but you don't see the work of the Spirit in their life, could it be that they don't really understand that the old them had to die and the new one had to come out? Because I, I'm going to tell you all, we live in a Bible belt. There are a lot of people who think that they're Christians. And it's not too condescending to say, if we don't see the work of the Spirit in someone's life, it may be that they're not saved. We need the death of Jesus Christ as much as we need the, re the resurrection. And we must believe in both because only those will save a fallen sinner. Let's pray. Father, let the resurrection have its power in us by the Spirit. I thank you for the death of Jesus. Thank you for sending your only begotten Son to give us the gift of eternal life. Father, part of that new life begins today. We don't have to wait until heaven to see your kingdom come and your will be done. <clears throat> Father, I pray that uh, for anyone in this room and anyone in this community who thinks that they believe in the gospel but knows nothing of resurrection power, I pray that the gospel would save and the gospel would change. And all these things we ask in your precious son's name. Amen. Amen.